One of the promises made today came from Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson talking about childcare. And what we're announcing today is daycare that will be $10 a day for every family with a household income under $65,000, $20 a day for every family up to $90,000, and $30 a day for every family up to $125,000 a year of family income. This is real. This is not a slogan. This is an opportunity. Let's bring in Sharon Gregson, who is a child care advocate. Sharon, thanks so much for being back with us. My pleasure, Jill. I know you have been a longtime advocate of $10 a day daycare. This plan includes $10 a day daycare for some people and then on a sliding scale. What's your response to what the BC Liberal leader announced today? Well, first of all, I have to say what a huge success for families and grandparents and employers across BC who have been advocating for $10 a day childcare since it was first introduced in 2011. So a huge victory um, that the Liberals have changed their approach to childcare. I think they're recognizing that um, they they didn't have a a winning approach to childcare based on their past performance. So this is a big day to have them talking about $10 a day childcare. There's still lots of questions. Um, it's not um, it's not clear on they've committed a billion dollars. Is that per year for childcare? Is that over three years, ten years? Uh, how many families were paying lower fees? What kind of red tape or bureaucracy has to be created to income test all the families in BC to find out which category of payment they'd be making? What are they going to do about ECE wages? Right now, ECEs in BC are receiving a $2 an hour wage top-up, and the NDP is committed to improve that. There's no mention of that in um, the Liberal release today. So lots of questions, but huge victory to have more politicians talking about the importance of $10 a day childcare. Uh, do you think this is something that could be accomplished? And I know it's it's politics and it's parties attacking each other, but when the Liberal leader talked about the NDP plan as a slogan, saying that it's such a small percentage of childcare spaces right now that are in the $10 a day that they really haven't delivered on the numbers they promised. Uh, and again, I know it's a, it's a lot of back and forth, but do you think a plan like this that is more tied to earnings. Is that one that could possibly be easier to roll out? Well, I think there's a whole lot more bureaucracy involved in creating the red tape for all that income testing. So um, where in the world there are high quality, accessible childcare systems, they are not built on income testing and subsidy. The same way that everybody gets to go to the local elementary school without being income tested to see how much they have to pay to go to grade two or grade five, or even to use the swimming pool or the library, everybody pays the same kind of basic entrance fee without being income tested. So that's our view of childcare, that it should be on a level playing field for all people to to access. It means that we don't need all that red tape for income testing. Um, There's a big question about how many spaces are going to be created. We know we have um, only enough childcare in BC for about 20% of families. That has to be addressed. We need more spaces and we need them to be part of a system, not just a, a market-based approach and treating childcare as a commodity. So lots of work to do to build a system. I'm there, and we need more details from the Liberals on, on what they're proposing to know if they meet that, that threshold. In Quebec, that system is based on income and income testing as well. Do you think there are parts of that system that we could draw from? 
Well, the most successful part of the Quebec system happened when they first launched it, when it was flat $5 a day, and then it went to $7 a day. And that's when most women were attracted back into the workforce. 70,000 more women in Quebec up to about 2012 were enter- had entered the workforce because of their childcare accessibility. Then Quebec had a change in government and went to a sliding scale. Um, now they've tweaked it again recently. Um, so Quebec is not the perfect system to base our BC approach on. We can learn from them, but we don't want to duplicate their mistakes. We want to to look at the evidence from around the world on what works well when you're building a quality, affordable childcare system. Uh, and you mentioned it as well, the number of spaces, the workers required to open up new spaces. And again, having politicians offer up promises is one thing. How do we actually make that happen in BC? Well, right now in BC, uh, over the last couple of years, we've had over 32,000 families who have paid $10 a day or less for their childcare, either in the prototype sites or in another pro- or any other program where they qualified through the affordability benefit. So that's a lot of families already accessing $10 a day childcare. But what we need is more spaces now and the educators to work in them, as you said. And so there is a $2 an hour wage top up now that brings the average wage up to about $20 an hour. We're suggesting it should be a starting wage of $26 an hour. That's why it's so important to know of the billion dollars that the Liberals are proposing over what time period, because that really impacts how much can be accomplished and when. And so there's, that's where I say there's a lot of details that we need because recruitment and retention is a major problem in the childcare sector. All right, Sharon, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much, though. Appreciate you joining us to talk about this. Yeah. Bye for now. That is Sharon Gregson, a childcare advocate. Well, we have talked a lot about the financial impact of COVID-19. Certainly businesses still struggling. Yesterday on the program, we talked about the Mustel poll that showed one in four businesses in Greater Vancouver are fearful that they will not survive the next 12 months. We can look at that part of the impact, but there's also the psychological toll. And that's what researchers at UBC have been looking at as well. Coping with isolation, being separated from loved ones, the stresses that come along with working from home. While some people have embraced that and are getting used to that, some people, I think it was Microsoft today, coming out saying that they were looking towards a major shift in making that permanent. But it is having a huge impact on our mental health and our well-being. And those are the types of impacts that a lot of doctors and professors are looking at and saying, we won't know the full impact. We won't know just how much this pandemic has delivered that psychological blow. We likely won't know that for months, if not years. Now, one of the things we talk about are things that we took for granted before, such as going for coffee with friends, meeting up with people, hugging people if they were in your hug bubble. Uh, Although some people are huggers and hug just about anybody and handshakes. Now take a listen to this clip. This is Dr. Fauci in the United States. This was Dr. Fauci speaking in April and he had made a comment saying, this is what he said in April, handshakes might be a permanent thing of the past. And he was on today not today, the show today, and asked, answered a question because the anchor said to him, did you really mean it when you said we may never be able to greet each other with handshakes again? You know, in a perfect world, when you're dealing with the potential for this terrible ordeal that we're going through right now, knowing that hands and hands to face do it, 
that would be something that I think would hopefully be attainable, but I don't think it will be. I mean, I said that. I said that, you know, somewhat serious and some not realizing that that likely will never happen. What I really wanted to tell people is that when you're talking about getting back to normal, we know now that we can get hit by a catastrophic outbreak like this. The whole world can. We've been talking about this. You know, what's your nightmare that keeps you up at night? A new respiratory infection that is easily transmissible and that has the capability of high morbidity and mortality. And here we are. So that's really what I meant by the world not getting back. Now we know in real time it has happened and it can happen again. So we really need to be prepared to respond in a much more vigorous way. So that was Dr. Fauci responding in April to a comment he made saying handshaking might be one of the social norms that we never return to. Well, content producer, show producer Ben Dooley is with us to talk more about this. Ben, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. What are your thoughts about uh, never returning to the handshake? I mean, I, I think eventually we will get back to, to doing handshakes, but, uh, you know, if, if it was something that we decided to, to leave in the past, I wouldn't be, uh, totally against that for, for a number of reasons. You know, I use a wheelchair, so my hands aren't always the cleanest, so I, I don't really like, you know, uh, shaking hands with, uh, with other people. And I'm also a left-handed person, and most people, uh, shake hands with their right hand. So that's awkward too. Uh, so if we left, uh, handshakes in the past, I'd be, I'd be totally okay with it. <laughs> I agree with you. And my reason's different. I'm just, even before the pandemic, I remember seeing ads about just how many germs that you pass on when you're shaking someone's hands. There was a time a few years ago on the morning show here on CKNW, they brought in a germ tester that tested everybody's phones their hands, and I I won't name names, but there were some people who worked in this place. Their hands tested higher than toilet seats for germs. And that's what people are shaking when you're shaking someone's hand. Yeah, I I don't even want to, you know, think about where uh, some people are putting their their hands. You know, there there are people who are, uh, you know, regular nose pickers and stuff like that. So, uh, so... You know, it's it's definitely not the most hygienic thing uh, uh, to greet people. No, that's one of the things. And we wanted to talk about this today because, again, a UBC re- researcher has taken a look at, at the psychological toll of the pandemic. Uh, handshaking, a big one. Uh, I know you've been working at home for the entire pandemic since March, and it was an adjustment. Uh, I remember talking to you early on in the pandemic about how it made a huge difference when you moved your desk to the window to get some natural light. Uh, how has it been, though, with, with, with getting, getting used to that kind of that, that idea of the workplace is also your home place. I mean, I mean, it's it's definitely been weird. You know, the first the, the first I'd say two or three months uh, were a big adjustment period because uh, you know I kind of felt that I was on all of the time because I'm home, I work at home, so I should always be working. But uh, the, the last few months, you know, it's kind of it's become become kind of normal now. It's just. Uh, the way way I do things, and I've I've definitely gotten better, uh, certainly over the summer of you know, finding that time to to get away, which I think is uh, is really important, especially in the times that we're in right now.
Uh, you mentioned too the fact that that you use a wheelchair to get around. We've talked a lot about transit. Uh, we've talked about some of the challenges there when elevators don't work. Uh, I remember you saying too that you weren't really comfortable going out and about until the mandatory masks came in, and, and that was a rule. Has that changed things for you? I, I I'm honestly, you know, still staying um, pretty close to home. I I don't really uh, need to be going out, so I I'm just kind of still. Still sticking close to home as much as possible, but I did uh, did get out for uh, socialization with uh, with our friend uh, John Ge- John Jang a couple of weekends ago. So that was uh, really nice because uh, you know I I haven't been seeing a whole lot of people since March. Yeah, and those are the things. And again, that this study is looking at, and we kind of joke about handshaking. And I think uh, as we we we've discovered there, we all, we would both be fine to say goodbye to handshaking, bring in the elbow bump or whatever. Just a hello is fine too. Uh, but those other those interactions and being able to go out and about and not think about a pandemic or think, oh, no, do I have a mask on me? Uh, those are things I think that are going to have a long term effect on people. Absolutely. You know, there are, there are people that are are definitely struggling with uh, the impacts of the p- pandemic. And, you know, myself included, uh, I, I've definitely had times where I've been been struggling throughout uh, the last seven months. So I, I do think that, uh, you know, there will be things that we don't rush back to when uh, when they give us the all clear that uh, things can uh, start getting back to normal. One of the other things this study looks at too is virtual health care. Uh, I've had one virtual doctor appointment throughout the entire pandemic. Uh, have you had any uh, any um, any uh, virtual health appointments or have you had to do anything different in that sense? Uh, no, not not really. Everything uh, that, that I've had to do uh, has unfortunately had to be in person, but uh, my brother, um, a couple of weeks ago, he had uh, virtual uh, healthcare appointments, and uh, I, I think that those are those are great. Um, and if we can make that a permanent fixture of our new society, I'd, I'd definitely be on on board with that. It is it is so strange to be talking about that something that we probably wouldn't have thought about seven eight months ago, and now this is one of the things that uh, professors and researchers are saying uh, it's going to be here to stay. Yeah, I I was having a, a conversation with our boss, uh, Larry Gifford, uh, when I was working uh, weekends. They they always want me to you know fill in on on the morning show or the overnight show, and I I always had to turn them down because I couldn't uh, get into the studio because I don't drive and and transit doesn't uh, operate at those hours. And if uh, if you know we had figured out that uh, producing a show from home was possible, then that, that's something that I could have done. So that's, so that's a good thing. And Ben, we, we've lost your phone a little bit there. Can you still hear us? Yeah, I'm still here. Okay, uh, that's that's a good thing. And uh, I'm glad that we've been able to kind of figure that out. Ben, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much. That is our content producer, uh, Ben Dooley. The phone got a little bit muffled today. It's uh, There's a bit of a bug in the system today with our phone lines. But so here's the thing. Ben and I both agree. Handshakes, happy to bid them farewell. See a handshakes, never liked it in the first place. We are going to take a little break from talking about the global pandemic and the BC election, two of the topics that have dominated the airwaves. Instead, we are going back to another topic that I know a lot of people are interested in because it seems like the rules change from day to day. 
maybe not day to day, maybe months to months, talking about distracted driving and a lot of questions around whether or not wearing earbuds counts as distracted driving. And joining me on the line to talk more about this is Kyla Lee, a lawyer with Acumen Law. Kyla, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Before we get to earbuds, uh, how are you feeling? I'm I'm doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I realized, even though I just said we weren't going to talk about COVID, we've talked to you on the show about that so many times, it seemed wrong not to ask. <laughs> well, I appreciate the, the concern. That's very kind. All right. Good to know that you're feeling uh, feeling good. Let's talk about this. And this is a recent BC Supreme Court decision because there was a lot of confusion. Could you wear one earbud? What happens if you were wearing both earbuds? So does this clarify where how earbuds play into distracted driving? Uh, Yes and no. Um, This case certainly clarifies that you cannot have earbuds in your ear, plural, uh, regardless of whether or not your phone is on. Um, There were cases that said that essentially having them plugged into the phone would be an extension of the phone. But if they can't work because the phone's not on and they're not an electronic device on their own, they may not be an electronic device if the phone's not operative. And this case answers that question. It still seems confusing. Confusing. <laughs> it's very confusing. Best practice if you're if you're wearing any type of earpiece and you're in your vehicle is just to make sure that you've only got it in one ear. So if it's you know your AirPods, one AirPod in, one AirPod out. If it's um, a connected via a wire, one in, one out. If it's um, a Bluetooth earpiece, make sure it's only worn in one ear. And because I would imagine, too, you could get into a whole discussion. What if you had the, I'd call them the old-fashioned ones now only because they plug into the phone. Uh, But what if you were wearing those and they weren't plugged into anything? Well, if you're wearing them and they're not plugged into anything, it would seem from this judgment that they're not on their own an electronic device because they don't transmit data. They don't, uh, they're not capable of making a telephone call or transmitting any type of a signal. Um, But you don't want to have them both in your ear if they're not plugged into anything because guaranteed if a police officer sees it, you're going to get pulled over and they're not going to believe you that it wasn't plugged in. Right. Kind of like even if you had, I mean, if you decided you wanted to put cotton batten in your ears and drive around with it in your ears for whatever, for who knows, for whatever reason, I mean, that's not an electronic device either, but I'm guessing it's probably not recommended. Right. Anything that's going to attract the attention of the police, you probably shouldn't do while you're driving unless you're trying to get pulled over. So so what was the, the key in this point? Was it the fact that the phone was dead? The, the key in this case was the fact that the earbuds were connected to the phone and being worn in both ears. It, the court essentially said it doesn't matter whether or not the phone's dead, because earlier this year, the BC Court of Appeal said that if you're touching or holding your phone, even if it's not operational, then it's still distracted driving. So it's completely absurd. <laughs> hmm. Uh, so, so do you think this gives people, uh, I, I don't know, we were saying it's still kind of confusing, but has it raised more questions then about exactly what is distracted driving and what's not? It has raised questions. Like, for example, if you're using an earbud style uh, earpiece that doesn't plug into the phone, like it's connected via Bluetooth, um, if you have those in your ear and your phone is dead, are they connected to the phone any longer and an electronic device? What about people who wear hearing aids? And if their hearing aids are connected to their phone, you know, I have family members who use their phone to adjust the level of their hearing aid. Is that supposed to be prohibited under the law? A lot of people have questions about this that aren't answered by the judgment or by the legislation. Does it make a difference then or does this case 
uh, show a difference between wireless earbuds and those with wires on them? It doesn't, because this case only concerned uh, an individual who had those older style headphones that were wired connected into the phone. Hmm. It it seems like it goes back to the whole point of using an electronic device and and how we've talked about it before that you could be touching all the buttons on your car stereo and flipping channels and trying to go between, if you have an old car like mine, the CD player and the the radio stations, and that's fine. But if you touch your phone twice because it's an electronic device, that somehow is more distracting. And again, you know, I think this exposes a real problem in the law, which is that we're not prohibiting the conduct that's dangerous on the road. We've created this arbitrary definition of what distracted driving is, that when you try and shoehorn specific examples into it, leads to results that don't make a lot of sense. Like you can't pick up a phone even if the battery's dead, or you can't have two earbuds in your ear even if it's not actually playing anything through your phone. And in the case of the, the person that was at the heart of this case, then uh, what, what, where does that leave him? Well, facing a $368 fine, four points on his driving record and uh, increased insurance rates. And uh, is he, does he have any chance, would he appeal or, or try and fight this more? He could appeal. Uh, He could appeal the decision to the B.C. Court of Appeal. Um, But based on the fact that this judgment was rendered on the basis of authority from the B.C. Court of Appeal, the likelihood of success at a further level of appeal would probably be very slim. What do you think needs to be done then? And again, we've talked about distracted driving a lot in the past. Another case that that has this decision and, and still adds to the confusion. What do you think needs to be done to clarify it? Well, I think the government needs to just start over from the beginning, explicitly indicate what is and what isn't allowed with regard to current technology. This law was drafted, you know, back in 2010 at a time when we didn't have the same connection to our phones that we have now and the same technology in our vehicles that we have now. And the law needs to be revisited. And I know you said we wouldn't talk about the election, but <laughs> this could be an election issue. Um, you know, I would I would consider voting for, for a party that made a commitment to making this law make sense. And it just seems like one of the stranger ones as well. But you're right, because we're talking about a law that was drafted at a time where now we have wireless headphones and we've got all of these different devices. We have voice activated. We have all of these things that could be considered distractions. But but and again, get to the heart of it is is what this person was doing dangerous. Well, I don't think it's dangerous at all. I mean, the biggest risk here is that he may not have heard something on the road, but you can equally not hear something on the road by playing your stereo loud or by having cotton balls in your ear uh, or just by not having very good hearing relative to the next person. So that is no more dangerous than anybody else on the road who has anything else that's impacting their hearing. And so the law as it stands right now, then, doesn't differentiate or or does it does it Uh, acknowledge any difference in headphones and that we've been talking about the earbuds or the the ones with the wires. But if you're allowed to have one uh, earbud or one earpiece in your ear, would that mean somebody technically could have noise cancelling headphones as long as they only have one on one ear? I think, yes, it would be hard to keep them on your head if you had like the big, you know, Beats by Dre style headphones. It would be hard to keep them on your head with it only on one ear, but you technically wouldn't be in violation of the law if you wore them like that, even though it would be distracting and even though it would cancel all the noise from the road, at least on one side of your head.
Right, because you would think that, say, if an ambulance was coming, that would cancel out more of that sound than having two earbuds in your ears that weren't actually attached to anything. An ambulance hearing a small child that's screaming and about to run after something into the road, hearing an animal. There's all sorts of things we have to use our ears for while we're driving in order to drive safely if we are hearing people. And and people who are deliberately obstructing their ability to do that are posing a risk inherently by doing that. Uh, so just before I let you go, can we run down what is allowed having a phone in the car? Because it feels like it changes so much. So at this point, you're allowed to have an earbud or earpiece in one ear. In one ear, so long as it's connected to the phone in a way that doesn't obstruct your ability to operate the vehicle. And if you're doing anything with the phone while it's connected to your earpiece, the phone must be mounted. So the phone must be mounted. The phone can't be, say, on the driver's seat or in a cup holder? The only time the phone can be on the driver's seat or in the cup holder is if you're not using any of the other features. So you're not using it for GPS or music or for talking or texting. If you're doing any of those things, it has to be mounted. But it can be loose in the vehicle if it's not in use. Okay. And if it's mounted, is it still that you're allowed to touch it once? You're only allowed to touch it once to end, receive, or decline a call. You can't touch it to change a song. You can't touch it to reprogram your directions on your GPS or anything like that. And do you see people getting pulled over and ticketed for those for infractions to those rules? All the time. Lots of people don't understand the one-touch rule, and lots of people think there's no difference, and they're probably right, between tapping on your phone to change your song and tapping on your steering wheel button or on your radio button to change the song. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. And you're right. This would be an interesting election issue. It hasn't come up yet, but you never know. There's still some time left in the campaign. Uh, Kyla, thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for having me. That's Kyla Lee, lawyer with Acumen Law. Well, as you've been hearing in the news yesterday, Vancouver City Councillors voted unanimously in favour of a plan to spend $30 million for housing action to support people who are homeless in the city. A unanimous vote, which we don't often see at Vancouver City Hall. But what will it actually mean? Earlier today on Mornings with Simi, the mayor of Vancouver, Kennedy Stewart, was asked about the current camp in Strathcona Park and will the first step be to help people who are truly homeless in that park? Well, no, I mean, there's, you know, part of the motion was, of course, we recognize that the Strathcona encampment is, uh, you know, has been very topical and in the news, but we heard uh, callers from Chinatown. Uh, we heard, uh, of course, from Yale Town, the West End, so right across the north part of the city. And really, it's up to our expert staff and uh, staff from BC Housing and Vancouver Coastal Health to, uh, you know, use their expertise and utilize these resources the best way uh, they can. So I think uh, as soon as the units uh, become available, uh, then folks will be offered a chance to uh, to uh, uh, to move there. Let's bring in Jeremy Hunka. He is with the Union Gospel Mission in Vancouver. Jeremy, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, what is your response to this motion passing uh, the $30 million uh, hoping to house homeless people? You know what? Honestly, there's a big sigh of relief and people have been uh, crying and, and screaming and putting into a megaphone action, 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 action for, you know, the last six, seven months, especially. And this now is a unanimous decision that put some investment um, to help people as things are getting really, really bleak. Um, so it's not a panacea. It's not going to 
it's not going to fix everything, but uh, this is a really big positive step. Do you think people will be willing, though, when we're talking about the first part of this plan, it's to help get people off the street, but it's also talking about utilizing things such as the hotel at, I think it's 2400, uh, I forget the exact location of that, and also uh, the Jericho Jericho Hostel, which has been uh, not being utilized, especially during the pandemic. Will people want to go to what is viewed by many as not permanent housing, but as more shelter space? I think it'll depend on on the individual. There will likely be some people, I would guess, who um, won't want to go that route. Um, however, though that will will, in my experience, that's that is a minority, and there will be a lot of people who, as things are so bleak and dark and rainy, and COVID nineteen is a threat, and um, I, I think the the majority of people when presented an option to get into housing within, you know, rapidly or within a relatively short period of time, we'll take that opportunity. Um, And there's big, complicated, complex reasons why others may not want to take that immediately. Um, People have, really briefly, I mean, lots of people who are homeless have been let down, traumatized, um, they've suffered greatly, uh, they don't often have trust for authorities because of what's happened to them in their life. And they are sometimes reluctant. Sometimes they need uh, more autonomy. So I'm hoping that as part of this $30 million plan, and it's a big plan, I, I'm hoping that there are that part of the wraparound support and part of the flexibility that um, those who execute, execute the plan uh, have will be to make appropriate spaces for people depending on where their needs are. Um, and that includes things like mental health supports. That includes things um, like recovery um, and, and those types of those types of things. But to have the spaces is a big deal because we haven't had the spaces for the last uh, six or seven months, even though people have been, uh, you know, crying and, and calling for access. Uh, so let's look at the Jericho Hostel, because with nobody really traveling, I would imagine that space hasn't been used much at all. It is a city-owned site. Uh, do you have concerns, though? That hostel is way far out. It's not close to a lot of the supports uh, in the downtown area. Uh, is there a concern there that, that that needs to be done in a way that anybody going to that hostel, those supports need to be put, be put in there as well? Well, I don't know the Jericho Hostel well, so I'm not going to, just to be honest with you, I'm not going to, I don't know it well. But what I will say is, again, hopefully what what should happen is that people who are in the position to be able to um, be further away from centralized supports will be perhaps the ones who get those spaces. I did hear um, uh, another city councillor earlier today say that it's that those that if people do need supports then those supports will need to follow it can't be um that people are moved into an area where they'll need something that isn't there that's not the purpose of this plan so i'm i don't know i mean obviously like ugm isn't a part of that plan we're not the ones orchestrating it but from our perspective if it's done right it's a, it's a it's a big positive step
Uh, are you concerned at all, the mayor there, in, in, ask, in responding to that question of if the priority first is going to be people living in Strathcona Park? And he said, no, it's going to be the people, obviously, who need shelter, who need these spaces. Uh, but we've heard from people living, particularly on the inside, the inner circle of that park, who, who you might describe as homeless that that would be exactly what a motion like this is geared towards saying that there are people living on the perimeter of that park that are taking advantage of them that are stealing from them that are peddling drugs to them this criminal element are you concerned that those who are the most vulnerable in that situation aren't going to be offered the shelter space first oh gosh i hope not um we know that there are uh there is uh i mean there are people who take advantage of other people and they do it unfairly unjustly maliciously and it's awful because i we see it often with our homeless guests and our homeless neighbors that they're often the biggest they 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 are often the victims of things that we can't even imagine i would i i think what the mayor said there when i listened to that clip was that he's relying on people on the experts like the health authorities or outreach workers or people who are familiar to make sure that the the people in greatest need will get the spaces that they need i i hope that that um is is will happen because that i mean there are just people who flat out need a place who are in desperate situations and it's it's a lot of work and it's complicated to uh make sure people get into the right times types of places because everybody's place in homelessness is so different whether it's grief trauma mental health um addiction there's a lot of reasons so it's not gonna it, it will be complicated it's not easy um but it's positive And I think that's what people are hoping for. Absolutely. And like you said, that people that are in the most need that just need a place will get a place. What do you think will happen, though, when we look at what happened at Oppenheimer Park, when that park, when the camp was eventually shut down, people were offered shelter in in a hotel. They were offered shelter space. But now we see what's happening in Strathcona Park. Even if we house everybody right now that needs housing, what's to stop more people from putting up tents to to it seems like every time people get housed, we see another tent city pop up. Oh, well, I mean, like I said, it's not a panacea. This won't solve everything. And uh, I mean, I, there's no way that this will solve the problem of homelessness, but it will end homelessness for hundreds of people who are otherwise now at risk. And that in itself is a victory, not only for the people who are really in desperate times and at risk right now, but also for the rest of society, because we know that studies show it's far cheaper, more efficient to do it this way. And it also reduces some of the problems that have been called out and associated with some big camps. Um, So I think that's important to note. Um, But this can't end. And now that the city has made this investment and this decision which is great um there needs to be further investment not only from the city but provincially and federally to continue this work because as i said every time we have uh uh, because homelessness and the status quo ends up costing our cities and society and provinces and country much more just to deal with the consequences of it than to put the money up and invest it help people and also 
um, be more efficient while we do it. It's this won't end. And people need to understand that this like this $30 million is great. and It's going to help a lot of people. um, And but it's not going to it's not the be all and the end all. This will continue. And we just need to keep working at it because it is so valuable when you see somebody who is feeling uh, terribly desperate and hopeless and maybe they're ill because they've gotten a cold or they have they've gotten a pneumonia and they feel like they're they've had it and they're almost done to see that transformation in that person's life to six months a year two years later working doing well reuniting with family sitting around the thanksgiving dinner years later talking about how at one point they were homeless and now they're helping others get out of homelessness that is incredible and that we need to continue that all right, uh, Jeremy, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thanks so much, Jill. All right, Jeremy Hunka, Communications Manager with the Union Gospel Mission. Well, some changes are coming to what you can take if you are on SkyTrain talking about bikes. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about that is Jill Drews, a TransLink spokesperson. Jill, thanks so much for being with us. No problem. Good afternoon. Uh, so what changes are being made as far as people with bikes and taking SkyTrain? Well, in the past, we banned bikes during rush hours to allow um, the maximum amount of room for commuters. Rush hours are busiest time, so it just made sense. But now, um, with the COVID-19 pandemic, having ridership reduced by 60% mostly, we do have extra space. And one of the things we're trying to do right now, and we're looking at ways to do it, is to prevent, um, you know, an increase in vehicle vehicle congestion on the roads. Uh, It's likely to happen, as maybe people are a little bit more afraid to travel with others and in a mass transit situation and in fear of getting the virus. So there are other, are, are other options, and cycling is one of them. Um, we do have a lot of great cycling infrastructure in Metro Vancouver. And, you know, we thought allowing bikes on at all times could help commuters maybe choose to, to take a bike, at least for part of their trip, right? You could take your bike from your home to the SkyTrain, take your bike on the SkyTrain, and then bike the rest of the way once you get off at the other end. Right. Were you hearing from uh, transit riders that, that they wanted to see this happen? It wasn't based on customer feedback, no. It was something we came up with as a way to encourage cycling and transit use at the same time. Because under under normal conditions, and like you said, it was a space issue, and, and during a rush hour when the, the, the cars were packed, it could cause problems. Um, but are, are you confident then that there is enough space now with the ridership? Right. Um, SkyTrain is is sort of around 40% of the ridership it was before the pandemic. So there should be ample space. That said, we do still have a limit of two bikes per car. And also we'll be monitoring the situation. If it causes problems, we can change back. It's, it's something we're trying and we'll reevaluate in the spring. And how do you enforce, though, having two bikes per car? Well, yeah, we're not going to have somebody checking at every station. Like a lot of our um, rules and regulations, these are things we ask our customers to abide by, just, you know, as good as good citizens of, of SkyTrain land, I guess. And we do have SkyTrain attendants at stations who may ask a customer to remove a bike if there are too many. But we do ask customers to follow the rules in all instances. It just makes it a more pleasant experience for everyone. And I guess part of the, the issue or part of the, getting the message out that you are relaxing uh, these rules, is it starting immediately or when does it start? Yeah, it's starting, Starting, I guess, on Monday. Um, we only had these prohibitions for Monday to Friday rush hour. So um, I guess as of, as of this afternoon or Monday, go ahead, take your bike on SkyTrain if you're um, traveling in peak time.
And much like we've been talking about masks, if somebody doesn't see somebody not wearing a mask, they're asked not to take the matter into their own hands and call them out on it or, or, or be confrontational. We've seen uh, that uh, have some negative consequences. Um, part of this is to get the message out. So if starting Monday you see somebody on the train with their bike in rush hour, uh, don't assume that they're breaking the rules because those rules have changed. That's right. So uh, we've you know, I'm glad you're having us on to talk about it. It's one great way to get the word out. We've uh, used some some marketing assets. We've also used our social media channels to let our customers know. And you're right, you know, with any of these rules, please don't take anything into your own hands. You never know who you're dealing with, especially with a stranger. Call our transit police whenever you feel unsafe. They have a anonymous text line. They also have silent alarms on board. It's probably prudent to let, uh, to let them handle these disputes. And and just to clarify, though, for people that are taking bikes on, they're, they're still being asked to go in the designated spots. It's not as though you can take your bike on and just kind of wedge it in wherever you want to put it? No, I mean, it's, it's an etiquette thing, right? We do have trains with cars that have designated bike spots, um, especially our newer trains have. Oh, that's a lot more common. Maybe the older trains don't, but, you know, take up some space that nobody's taking up. It's just kind of an etiquette thing, you know. Um, give everybody room, try to be as physically distanced as possible. And that includes if you're taking a bike. And how are things going as far as, or do you have numbers on mask wearing and that people are complying with those rules? Yeah, it's actually been quite um, quite uh, encouraging what we've seen through our spot checks. We're up at about 95% of customers wearing masks, which is exactly what we had hoped this policy would achieve. So, you know, thanks to all our customers for, for helping us keep transit a bit safer. All right. Do you anticipate any other changes coming to kind of encourage people to incorporate transit into their daily, whether whether it is that they're going to work or just going from point A to point B? Yeah, we're looking at, you know, looking around the world, looking at best practices, trying to find new things we can incorporate to make transit safer. It is safe. It's not been a known vector uh, during the pandemic. And, you know, we'll look at any and everything we can do to make it a more comfortable experience for customers right now. Uh, do you think it'll have an impact on cleaning in that I know cleaning has been amped up because uh, of the virus? Uh, I'm wondering if we suddenly see more bikes and we know that uh, the rainy season in, in Vancouver leads to mud and that will that do you think lead to then the need to have more cleaning? Oh, it's hard to say. We'll be monitoring how the policy affects uh, all aspects of customer experience. I mean, ultimately, that's the goal here is to make it a transit a comfortable experience for people. But if, you know, problems crop up, we'll deal with them. We're, we're kind of in a new space right now. We're in a new challenge, something we've never dealt with with the pandemic. So, you know, we're looking at everything and anything and everything and we can adjust as we go. And if cleaning needs to happen more frequently due to mud or something like that, I'm sure it's something we can look at. Um, in general, if customers notice an unclean train or car or bus, do call customer service with the bus or car number and we can address it right away. All right. Jill, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, great to talk Thanks with for you. Having me. Jill Drews, a spokesperson with TransLink. So starting Monday for the rush hours, there is no longer the rule that you can't take your bike on SkyTrain or Canada Line. If you want to take your bike on and incorporate transit as part of wherever it is you're going starting Monday, you can then take it on at any time of day. There will not be those restrictions during the rush hour periods.